Hi Venters, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Event, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with journalist Angela Walker. Angela has over 20 years experience as a news reporter, including 12 years as a senior journalist with BBC News. She now works freelance and has her own podcast called Angela Walker Reports, where I came across her because she interviewed friend of the pod, Dr. Robin Hadley. From our chat off air, I also discovered that me and Angie went to the same secondary school, St. Edward's in Romford. And in this episode, we chart her journalism journey, from a chance opportunity to go on local radio to talk about a motorcycle company she was working at as a receptionist at the time, right through to working for North Norfolk Radio with echoes of Alan Partridge, to moving to Moscow to work for Russia Today when it was first created. For industry issues, we discussed the cuts that have been made to local journalism in recent years and the impact that has had on holding politicians to account across the country. For Angela's mental health, we discuss motherhood and the discovery she made after childbirth where pregnancy caused her to discover she had a condition called hypermobility syndrome. We discuss the long battle she fought to be taken seriously with this condition by medical professionals, getting treatment for it and the impact it's had on her physical and mental health. We finish by discussing balancing motherhood with a career why she strives to juggle both as best as she can to be a role model for her daughter for her future career and to educate her about the stories she covers. So this is how my check-in with Angela Walker went. Angie, welcome to the Just Check-In pod. Thank you very much for taking the time to let me check in with you. It is a very small world to be checking with someone who happened to go to my secondary school, large because you're a successful person and not a lot of successful people <laughs> have come out of St Edwards. So first off, how are you? Very good, thank you. And I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure there's loads of success stories from St Edwards in Romford. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not a lot. <laughs> Definitely not a lot of the way the school is at the moment. But anyway, it's a separate podcast. You've had a very colourful and varied career that has literally taken you across the world. So I'm really excited to dive into this with you. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? I sure am. Let's start your podcast by talking about your journalism journey, Angie. So take me back to the beginning. What inspired you to become one? Where did your love for reporting or writing or storytelling come from as well? And the journey to where you are today? Well, I've always loved reading. I've always loved writing. Even when I was at school, I was writing poetry. I was writing like little reports. And I've always been interested in the world around me. So I guess that's where it stemmed from. And when I was studying, I was always English and the languages were always like my thing. 
So it kind of made sense that I would end up doing something that involved writing. And even now, like sometimes I just get words in my head and I just like, I have to get these out. I have to write them down. It's like a compulsion. I'd still write poetry every now and then. It's funny, like when I have my kids and you're so full of emotions and it's like a good way of just like writing stuff down and getting it out. And when you look back and you're like, oh, yeah, I did feel like that. So it's like... Writing to me is a way of capturing the way that I'm feeling. But with other people, it's like a way of helping them to tell their stories. And I kind of like fell into broadcasting in a funny way in that I was studying to go to university. I was at college and I was working at a local motorcycle training school. Actually, Very wrong might, for to that. Yeah, you might. <laughs> Match room you, and motorcycle training schools. Yeah, <laughs> you might know the Cardrome, which is in Upminster, which is like this amazing place where you could just pay and go in there and you didn't have to have a license. You could drive a car and it had like traffic lights and zebra crossings and stuff. I don't know. Is that still there, the Cardrome? I would not be conversant with the manner of Upminster anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so it was this great place and you could learn to ride a motorbike as well. And my boyfriend at the time was a motorbike instructor. So I ended up working at this motorbike training school to basically pay my way through college. I was at Havering College studying English and German and history. And so while I was working there at this motorbike training school, we got a phone call and it was from the local radio station. And they said, oh, the law's changing around motorbike training. Would the owner of the training school come on local radio and talk about the impact it was going to have on people wanting to learn to ride a bike? And my boss, who's a guy called Rob, he was like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just too nervous. And I said, this is a, a like an amazing opportunity. It's like free advertising. So you should go for it. And he didn't want to. And I said, well, look, do you want me to do the interview for you? I was selling these motorbike training courses. I knew the legislation inside out. So I did. So I did this interview with the local radio and then I heard myself on radio and I just enjoyed the process. And so I thought I'd really like to get into this. So I contacted the radio station back and I said, that was really fun. Could I come along and help out? So they said, yeah, we do this program on Saturday. It's a sports program and it's all run by volunteers. And it's a great way to come along, just have a go at radio. So I found myself every Saturday going along to Active FM in Romford and they were sending me out to football matches and in the what, rain. Romford Town? What, what, Romford what games Town, are we talking here? <laughs> Dagenham and Redbridge and we even went out to Thurrock. And I Grace. Was, wow, the, the yeah, depths Grace, of Essex that. <laughs> depths. And I didn't know anything about football. So I would just find some local supporters and go over and go, oh, hi, I'm Angie. I'm doing a report for the local radio station. What's going on? And then they'd tell me, well, so-and-so's just scored. So I would have the work radio station mobile phone and they would phone me and I would do a live report from this rainy football because it normally was rainy, rainy, rainy football pitch side somewhere and give a little 30 second report. 
I wasn't into football then, I'm not now, but I just liked the process. And I think if you're a reporter, you can really report on anything, can't you? You, It's your business to research it and find out what it's about. So after a while, I said, look to my boss, I'm not that keen on doing the football stuff. So would it be okay if I went and reported on the local speedway racing, which was in... Renowned, renowned to this day. (laughs) Yeah, which was in Thurrock. Because I rode a motorbike and it was my thing and I loved it. So I used to go, I think it was Thursday night, go down to the stadium, the speedway track. I'd be interviewing all the riders and I loved it. I loved the passion of these guys. I loved the, the smells of the derv, I think they call it, this engine oil that they use. And then they knew me because I was the one that turned up on a motorbike, this little blonde and, uh, and I did these and I made that my thing, you know, I was doing the speedway racing and I'd go back to the studio, edit up a little report, match report and interview all the riders. And, I, and it was great. And then after a while, I started doing the entertainment news in the mornings. So 6am, I'd be down at Active FM, helping out. And this was all for nothing. This is all for free because I just wanted to get into the industry. And I'd been making cups of tea. And and then, then I did a bit more. I was doing some jingles. And then it just kind of evolved. And at the same time, remember, I'm still at college. There's a lot to I, juggle, yeah. And yeah, and I'm still working at the motorbike training school because I need the, the money. And juggling the radio as well. Honestly, I don't know how I did it, but when you're 19, 20, you just have that passion and that energy. And then I started at uni, which was in Colchester. And when I graduated I got a full-time permanent job at Active FM as a newsreader and reporter which was just amazing and the sort of stars aligned and I've worked in broadcasting ever since. You then made the move to uh, Alan Partridge's neck of the woods north uh-huh. of Norfolk <laughs> and you worked for a radio station there for two years. Mm. Now I discussed this with mutual friend and friend of the pod Matt Graveling whereby There are so little opportunities for radio and TV journalists starting out and so much competition that you Mm. have to take basically anything you can get, cast your net wide and apply to everything, regardless of where it is in relation to you. So was that hard for you when you had to leave your roots behind at a fairly early age? Um, to be honest, I love traveling and I love experiencing new places and finding well, out about new <laughs> so things. <no. laughs> yeah, yeah. So no, I just embraced it as like a, an exciting opportunity. But what happened was I actually, so North Norfolk Radio is owned by the Tyndall Group and I'd actually applied for a job at Chelmsford at Dream, the radio station Dream FM. And I didn't get that job, which was a shame because it was quite local to me. But then they contacted me and said, look, you've not got the Chelmsford job, but we have got this new radio station opening up in Norfolk. Would you go to Norfolk? And initially I was like, no, I don't really want to. And then I thought, (laughs) and I just thought, well, it's an opportunity, as you say, and they're few and far between. And and I was doing what I wanted, which was news reading and uh, and reporting. And it was a bit more money and it felt like a step up. So I thought, yeah, why not? So I did. So I moved to North Norfolk and I lived in a little village called Little Snoring. I know where that is. My, Do you? My, my, yeah, my dad's, <laughs> uh, my dad's old mate has a has a barn there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. It's, it's very, it's, it's literally tiny. just, it's not even a pub. <laughs> There's nothing there. 
there and it's not even that close to Norwich and it was quite an it was isolated and I didn't know anyone but I was just there for the work which was also in a barn and I was the first voice on North Norfolk radio because you know we started off with a news bulletin and I was the news reader so that was me that was just so exciting and I can remember actually everyone was there for the launch like the local MP was there and all the local dignitaries and everyone involved in the radio station and now I'm in the news booth doing this uh, it's six o'clock I'm Angela Walker and you know and everyone was out there looking through the window and I was like oh my god I really can't mess this up it feels like um, hot fuzz (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, it it was daunting. But, you know, anyone who does live broadcasting will know that we kind of get off on that adrenaline buzz because anything can happen in live radio and live TV, and it often does. And so even now, I still get that thrill, that a little adrenaline rush. I'm not sure how healthy it is to be addicted to that, but I still get that every time I do anything live. So, yeah. Love From there, it. you moved to another late 90s TV icon's home, Slough, Ali G's Slough. neck of the woods, mm. where you got a job at Star FM as a news editor, so a significant yeah. promotion. What did you learn during this period? Wow, what did I learn? Uh, loads, actually, because I was sort of in charge. I had to do interviews, like to hire my own staff. But you know what? I'm still in touch with all those people that I worked with at Star FM in Slough. My old boss, I was just talking to him like the other day. And I mean, that must have been like, oh my goodness, almost 20 years ago. But it was a small radio station and we were tight knit and we supported each other a lot. And yeah, I'm still friends with those people now. So that just tells you what those relationships were like. But in those days, you know, now if you work in radio, the news cuts of the, you know, the national news clips, they all come down automatically onto your computer. You press a button and you play them out. Well, in those days, back in the day, it wasn't like that. They would be fed down by independent radio news network. And we had to record all those clips individually and cut them up. So they were ready for broadcast. So you'd have to sit there and you heard the beeps, the tones, which came down at 20 to 11, every more, well, 20 to the hour. And you had to quickly go and record them and top and tail them. And then you had to find the relevant news link that was printed out that would come through a massive dot matrix printer that was just constantly churning out bits of paper so you'd be scrabbling around to try and find the corresponding news link to each clip so it was a lot more physical and a lot more demanding than it is now and so the time pressures were really intense and in a small newsroom you are doing everything so you're writing the news bulletins presenting the news bulletins in between that you're doing interviews you're setting up other interviews you're forward planning so it was intense and it was really hard work and I suppose I just learned how to live off that pressure and how to juggle everything and how to deal with the pressures really I guess. I want to move on to the most surprising part of your journey, which was a stint at now quite infamous outlet, Russia Today, where you Mm. worked as an output editor. So firstly, how did that move come about? And how did you feel when you moved to Moscow, considering 
I'm presuming it was owned by the Russian government back then. Like, did you feel like you were behind enemy lines? Like, if you worked there, I don't know if you'd be like an enemy of the state now with the (laughs) war in Ukraine. I'd be undercover, wouldn't I? Yeah. Well, what happened was I was looking for my next move. You know, I had itchy feet. I'd been at Star FM for a while. The money wasn't great in local radio and I wanted to move onwards and upwards. And as we were saying before, you know, in broadcasting, there's a very limited number of opportunities. So I'd seen that they were recruiting for a new rolling news TV station. But when it was advertised, it didn't say Russia Today, this is owned by the Kremlin. Oh, right. No. Okay. No. And the interview was carried out at the APTN building, Associated Press TV News building in Camden. So there was that kind of association. It all felt very above board and it was exciting. And they were setting up from scratch, you know, so there was no history. We were a group of young broadcasters from around the world, actually. There were a lot of Brits, there were Americans, there were Australians. And the idea was that they wanted some experienced broadcasters to help them set up so that ultimately the local Russian reporters could learn from us because they didn't have anything like the BBC News Channel or Sky News I wonder why. or CNN. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have anything like that. And at the time, Putin wasn't the president. You know, there's a law that the president can only of Russia can only be in place for so many terms before they have to have a break. So Putin had stepped aside and the president was Dmitry Medvedev. So it felt at the time that links with Russia and the UK were friendly. You know, it wasn't as it is now. Obviously, there's been a serious deterioration. But as time passed, I became less and less comfortable with working there. And I remember when Alexander Litvinenko Mm. was poisoned in London And, you know, and I turned to the boss and I said, we need to be covering this. This is on the BBC. This is on Sky News. If we're not covering it, we're covering it up. So if you feel that there is a Russian side to this, let's get it on air. Let's say it. Let's be open. Like, let's tell the story. And they were very against that. And they didn't want to, they didn't want to touch the story. And then I was just thinking, I'm just not comfortable with this. In the UK, in UK politics and UK broadcasting, we give our leaders a really hard time, quite mm. rightly so. We grill them. We get them on telly. We, we fire questions them. at them. We hold them to account, yeah? And that doesn't happen in Russia, and it didn't happen then. And so I was uncomfortable with that. You know, my colleagues in Russia, they could not believe Uh, like Jeremy Paxman they were like how does he get away with talking to people like that and I was like freedom of speech (laughs) yes exactly so I learned a lot while I was there but it got to a point where I was just not very comfortable and then Russia went into Georgia Mm, and the tanks literally the tanks rolled in and we were covering it and I was very uncomfortable with it but also living in Moscow We felt it. We were like at war and you couldn't get Georgian produce yet. Georgia produced a lot of wine. You Mm. couldn't get Georgian wine in Moscow anymore. They produced this water, Bajormi water, which was lovely. Georgian food was really popular. Mm. Georgian restaurants were being shut down. There were signs saying that Georgian children weren't welcome in schools 
And I just was like, I could not believe that I felt like I was living through this. And it just felt so wrong. And I had Georgian friends. And I was like, I have to get out of here. I don't feel comfortable with what is going on. And there was the... You probably got at the right time, to be fair, now. (laughs) Bloody hell. And the Russian reporter, Anna Politkovskaya, she was assassinated on her doorstep. And there was a vigil for her, you know, because there's like a solidarity between journalists and female journalists, I think. And this just felt so wrong. It hasn't turned out the way that I'd expected. And I had my conscience was Mm. driving me and so it was time to come back home but I loved Moscow and I loved the Russian people and I had such an amazing time I traveled all over Russia we went to Siberia you know we'd get on an overnight train and go to St Petersburg and you just get on these trains and you'd be there among the Russian people and I learned a bit of Russian and I loved it. And as a Very life aggressive language, isn't it? <laughs> it was, oh, I think it's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's a Simpsons joke with the Russian there's two Russians playing chess and they're like shouting at each other. It's uh, like great, yeah. great game. How about next one? And Lisa's yeah. like terrified. Yeah, yeah. The Russians have, we used to call it metro face. You know, they're very po face, they're very Mm. serious. And I said to a Russian friend, why do you not smile at each other? Why are you so unfriendly, especially on public transport? She's like, why would I be smiling to a person that I don't even know? And I was like, well, she's like, if, you, God, if you're gosh, smiling. there's an history embedded in that quote. <laughs> people think that you're, she said, if you're smiling at people, strangers in the street, people think that you're an idiot. And I was like, oh, well, that explains a lot because yeah. I'm quite a friendly person. And I will be on a tube and I'll be like, oh, hi, are you all right? Oh, where are you going? And that is yeah, not don't do Russian. that in London. <laughs> the Russians do not do that. Yeah. And so it was really interesting getting to, but you know, if you make Russian friends, they are good friends. They're friends for life. They're very loyal and lovely so I just think what's going on now it does not reflect the feelings of the majority of Russian people certainly the Russians that I know and I'm still friends with yeah they're just really upset and you know and in disbelief over what is going on because Putin's Russia is not the Russia that I know that doesn't represent the Russian people that I know so yeah if people want to know why the Georgians hate the Russians that is a good history lesson (laughs) Yeah, sad times, sad times. You obviously moved back to the UK and you Mm. worked as an item producer on Eamon Holmes and Jeremy Thompson's breakfast programme on Sky News. And you also worked on the BBC News channel. Mm. So who's the Angie we meet here having been almost literally battle hardened by (laughs) Moscow? Well, I felt like I was on my way up, you know. I really wanted to get into the BBC. I had a lot of experience then, you know. I'd been doing news for a long time. I'd done all this radio. I'd been in charge of a rolling news channel in Russia. And I just wanted to carry on doing that back home. But what I really wanted was to be a reporter. So being a producer, like an item producer at Sky and on the rolling news BBC News channel... It was a means to an end. It wasn't what I wanted to do. A lot of people do that job and they and they enjoy it. And it is enjoyable. But I just wanted to be a reporter because I wanted to bring in my own stories and investigate them myself. So I just was there to as a stepping stone. And while I was in Russia, I actually had an interview with for a job 
at BBC London and I didn't get the job. They let me do the interview over the phone and I didn't get the job, but I did get the mobile phone number of the editor at BBC London and the email address. So I was like, I've got a contact here. I'm just going to keep updating him, shall we say. So I would be pestering him, sending him emails going, hi, just to let you know I'm doing this now. Oh, now I'm at Sky News and I'm doing (laughs) this. And eventually he said, Angie, would you like to come and work for three weeks at BBC London and I said yeah that would be great so I got this like three month contract and it was tricky because to work at BBC London I had to stop working at Sky because that was like a, an ongoing the dark side. <laughs> I know I know and I couldn't juggle the two but at Sky I was doing night shifts and that was really hard going after mm. a couple of years so so I got these three weeks at BBC London and then it turned into three months and then another three months and then I got a six-month contract and eventually I got a staff job there. But yeah, it was great. And I, and I was going from producing items for BBC London to producing the breakfast news bulletins and then helping out producing the lunch bulletins. And then I got an attachment at BBC Oxford eventually. But before that, I wanted to be trained, camera trained. That's what Mm -hmm. I wanted to do. I wanted to be a video journalist. So again, I was like, can you put me on this training course? And my boss was like, we don't need any more video journalists. And I was like, oh, but it's, you know, it's a development opportunity. We just have Carl Mercer. That's it. Please let me. Yeah, Carl Mercer. We love Carl Mercer. Uh, So actually, Carl Mercer is a very supportive colleague. He's a a legend. He's a legend. He is a legend. He's a legend. So they just eventually sent me, he said, look, okay, you can go on this video training course, but I can't guarantee that you'll get to put it into practice because we just don't need people. And I was like, yeah, whatever. You get me on that training course and I'm going to make it happen. And I did. And I would go, right, I work at the weekend if you let me go out filming and then I was just bringing in stories going, oh, one of the stories I brought in was about prostitute patrol in Slough. There was an area and there were like street walkers and the local MP. God, Ali, Ali G and prostitutes. We're really not giving <laughs> yeah. a, a Slough a good name here. <laughs> yeah, it's a sad times. But the MP, Fiona McTaggart, she started doing these patrols along with local people wearing high vis. And all they would do would walk along this street and hang around on this street corner to deter curb crawlers mm. so I said I want to go on this prostitute patrol and I think this is a really good story I know, I know, so I know. <laughs> and so I brought in this really strong story and it went out on the tea time news and on the lunchtime news Gosh, uh, tea time let... news, God, that was that's a yeah. It was a top story, and I was like, "This is it." But they wouldn't let me report it. They got another oh. experienced reporter. The politics of the BBC coming yeah, in. Yeah, I was big footed, and I was furious. I was like, "I've brought the story in. I've filmed it." I set up the interviews and they said, well, we only want people that are like known to the viewers. And I was like, well, how can I get known to the viewers if you don't let me on air? <laughs> if I'm not so known to was... the viewers. <laughs> exactly. But it was a good story. And I just kept on bringing the stories in. And eventually they just had to let me go out and film them. And then I, and then I got on telly. Yeah. Have you always had that persistence? Did you have to develop it? Uh, no, I think... I think I've always it's always been there. I'm a very determined person and if I set out to do something then I'm damn well going to do it and you're not going to stop me. <laughs> 
and I think you have to be like I am like that on the outside but on the inside obviously I'm like oh can I can I really do this but you know I think coming from the background that I come from in Romford working class sort of background and at the time everyone in the BBC was very well spoken you know it was all RP Mm. received pronunciation and I was you know this little blonde from Romford and I really had to fight to get taken seriously and you know it just left me really determined to make my mark you know, mm. you're not going to hold me back. And or, or conversely, you can use that to your advantage. I remember John Prescott was the Deputy Prime Minister and he came to Romford and there I was. Did he get uh, an egg chucked at him? No. But <laughs> That's I an old one... school political reference. <laughs> he did get an egg chucked at him during the week that he came to Romford, actually. Oh, wow. So that was the era and he came to Romford. He punched that person as well for the listeners. He did, he did. <laughs> And it just happened. It just happened. And there he was in Romford and they came on their campaign bus and I was wearing blue. I was not wearing blue. No, that's another story. Sue and Margaret Thatcher, who who thought that I was a, a Tory party person because I was wearing this blue suit. But John Prescott thought that I was part of his entourage. So I got an interview with him with my little mini disc recorder. And he thought I was part of his promotional team. So I was going, <laughs> Oh, can I oh, tell me about this? Tell me about that. And he was like, Oh, yes. And he sat down with me and he had a chat with me. And it, it later transpired. He wasn't giving me a one to one because he thought I was Angie from Active FM. He thought I was part of his team. So he was talking he it was a to me. Piece, basically, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got all these great clips because people didn't take me seriously, and I just used it to my advantage. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was, brings me on to my next question a little bit because you know you're someone from Romford. You came from a working class state comp in St Edwards, mm-hmm. which I went to. and We both went to, but different eras though. Although we had we had similar teachers as Are well. Are you suggesting that ones... I'm a lot older than you, Freddie? Well, I'm 29, so <laughs> okay. Just there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We definitely had a few different teachers, which kind of says a lot about how many teachers stayed there for so long. How conscious of your accent were you when you worked there? Did you ever have to posh up your accent a little bit when you were on telly? Did you ever yeah, feel the pressure too? I did feel the pressure, you know. Also, I remember my mum and dad would always be correcting me, saying it's garden centre, not garden centre, you know. And so they always wanted me to speak properly and so on. And, yeah, I was very conscious of trying to speak properly. And I think that's really sad, actually, because I was not ashamed of my roots, but... In those days, in those days, it wasn't that blooming long ago, but accent did matter. Now, I and accentism em- was quite strong in, I yeah. mean, it still is to a certain degree. I mean, I remember getting bannered when I was at uni and I was like, I'm a middle class lad from East London. How am I getting bannered about my accent here? Yeah, we still, and also the Essex thing. Oh my God, the Essex jokes, they're just, I don't, people don't do it now, but then they, the blonde jokes and the Essex jokes and the accent jokes, it was mm. a thing. And I think now regional accents are really embraced. You get the mm. continuity announcers who are like coming up later on BBC Coming One. up on BBC Radio Leeds. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it wasn't then, you had to be well-spoken. So I did try and tone it down. And now when I talk to my mates from Essex, they're like, oh, you're well posh. But I'm not. I'm still the same person. But I think I haven't lived in Romford for 20 years. And I've done a lot of traveling and I've been around people from mm. all over the world. So I guess my accent has changed. But definitely 20 years ago, I was fighting 
the Cockney in me, which I'm not really proud of, but I had to do it to it's, it's get a mo- where it's I Mockney am in Essex, isn't it? Not Cockney, Mockney, surely. Mockney. Well, my family <laughs> from the East End, so because yeah, everyone moved out from the East End, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they all moved move- to Kent and Essex. <laughs> yeah, moving to Romford from my parents was like stepping up. It was up, a class thing, wasn't it? It was aspirational. It yeah, 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 yeah. It was, and they're moving out to the suburbs. And back then, Romford was just Essex. Now it's sort of an overspill of East London, isn't it? But it wasn't yeah. really considered part of London then. It's only an overspill because um, of gentrification and social cleansing, really. Mm, of like, social, of, of, yeah. You're opening up a can of worms there. No, yeah. I did my, I'm, did my I'm dissertation not, on it in no university. Comment. Ah, oh, yeah, fascinating. So I wrote yeah. all about it. I want to talk now about the only industry, the issue that you wanted to discuss, which is the cuts that have been happening to local mm. news and broadcasting and the impact that it's had on... I guess our democratic system as a byproduct. Can you just tell me about why you wanted to talk about this? Well, I think it's really sad what's happened over sort of the last 15 years, which is the death of like local news, really. I mean, local papers, we used to buy a local paper. I remember, you know, when I was a kid and I was always really interested in it, weirdly, like the Romford Recorder was mm. thick. It was so thick. There was so much news in it, you know. They had reporters at all the court cases, every council meeting. There was someone from the local media there and they were telling people stories and holding people to account. And that is what journalism is all about. Now, people don't want to pay for news now. And so many local papers have gone out of business. And the same thing is happening in local TV news. You can call it a reshuffle. You can call it going digital, moving people from radio and TV to online journalism. Call it what you want. There are less reporters on the ground. And that means less people going to local council meetings, covering local stories. And it is an issue of democracy as far as I'm concerned. And I just think it's really, really sad. And a lot of the news that you get online is not written by journalists. Everybody thinks that they are a journalist now without the journalistic training. So you're not getting that analysis that you would get previously and I don't think people are always aware when they're reading stuff online am I reading a piece of journalism and often they're not so I think it makes me really sad because Mm. it's become harder and harder to be a journalist yeah and fewer journalists is fewer people being held to account so for those in authority it's great isn't it because they haven't got people like me delving into their business and highlighting practices, things that are going on that are so important. So I think it's really sad. One example of where maybe there was a chink of hope or maybe ray of light in that famously or infamously, depending on what political Mm -hmm. side of the spectrum you're on, former Prime Minister Liz Truss decided to do a round of local radio interviews, Mm. possibly or not possibly under the assumption that she might get an easy ride. However, the reality very much came back to bite her. And there's a series of interviews that Mm. happened across the country, basically, when she went and did those rounds of interviews. Mm. When that happened, did you half hope there would be a little bit of a turning of the tide? I didn't think there would be, no. I thought it was a fantastic example of what local journalists are capable of. 
because you know a lot of people stay in local tv and local radio not because they can't make it to network because they're really passionate about the communities that they represent you know i haven't gone for any network jobs in the last 10 years because i didn't want to because i loved working in oxford and working at south today and representing my local community and just because we're not on network doesn't mean that we're not capable and and I think that means that people are underestimated so there Mm. are so many fantastic journalists all across the country at small tv and radio stations and yeah people underestimate them but they're doing a fantastic job and that, that round of interviews really showed didn't it don't underestimate someone just because they're in like local radio because local radio is so important and Mm. those people are doing such a great job and that was one of the things that made me really sad about when BBC Oxford TV news was slashed last year everybody in that newsroom was so committed to telling people's stories and we told some amazing and important stories and we provided a service for a lot of people you know a lot of older people they don't want to get their news on the internet they still watch news bulletins and we saw it in covid there was a massive surge of people watching bbc local news and listening to Mm. bbc local radio because they trusted the service and they relied on the service that made me really cross you know all of the reporters were working throughout covid putting themselves at risk carrying on doing their jobs and then after it was all over so many of them have basically lost their jobs and been made redundant Mm. people were working in the newsroom in covid we had buzzers on yeah so that if you came within two meters of a colleague a buzzer would go off it was a really really stressful time Mm. everyone was working with masks on going around with wipes scared to use the bathroom scared to go to the toilet interviewing someone with a big long pole you know so you were two meters apart nobody knew how serious covid was going to be and every day all these reporters across all the local radio stations were going in telling the news going and standing outside hospitals interviewing people through windows and then what do we get 18 months later oh we're having a massive reshuffle your job's gone you can be made redundant or you can be redeployed I just want to come back I haven't finished actually because people working with that hanging over their heads about are they still going to have a job in local radio and local tv there were people in the newsroom on a regular basis breaking down in tears and there were people on antidepressants and it affected people badly and the support we got was oh go on to the intranet, click on this button and you can have like an online counselling session. Is that good enough? I don't know if it is. So there you go. And that's why I decided to take redundancy when I did because I couldn't work under those circumstances with that pressure. So yeah, that's why I decided to go it alone. Whether that was a good idea, I don't know. But as we talked earlier, I like to do things on my own terms and Mm. just leaving when I did... Yeah, I had to do that for my own mental health and sanity, basically. It's been three years since I worked at the BBC and I burnt most of my bridges, so we might as well burn the whole thing here whilst I'm there. (laughs) (laughs) Let's reflect on your journalism journey, Angie. So in the time that you've done it, first of all, what has been your proudest achievement? 
Do you know what? I was really, really proud, and it was like my swan song, really, for BBC South Today. I covered the contaminated blood inquiry since before there was an inquiry, and I built up some relationships with people whose relatives died as a result of being given blood products which were contaminated with HIV and AIDS. Many of them suffered haemophilia. So I've been following that story for seven or eight years, and I would go up to the High Court in London when they were trying to get an inquiry. I went to the inquiry. I interviewed them in their homes. And I managed to keep that story in the South Today headlines because I built up these relationships with the victims' families and they would contact me and go, oh, we're doing this, Angie. There's another development in the trial. And people would phone me up, email me and say, oh, would you tell my story? And that's what it's all about to me. So I felt very personally involved, emotionally involved in that story. And when you work at a small TV station and you have overstretched resources and you say you want to go up to London to cover a story, you have to fight for that because resources are stretched. So I would have to keep on going, look, we need to cover this story. The Oxford link is a lot of people were contaminated at the Oxford Haemophilia Centre. This is a connection. This is why we have to keep doing it. And I was really glad that I did because when they got the public inquiry, it meant that I'd built up this great network of professionals who were connected and victims' families. And so one of the last stories I did was about the contaminated blood inquiry and it was the lead story on BBC South Today a couple of months ago. So I'm really proud of any bit of coverage that I've helped those people get. I was really happy to do that. And those people are still fighting because even though the inquiry said that they're due compensation, guess what? The government hasn't paid them out, all of them. Mm. So that's the story that I was... It was really important to me to keep on pushing, to try and keep it on the news agenda. Now, I'm not saying by any means I'm the only person who's ever covered that story. Of course not. But I feel like I've done a little bit to help. And I also was one of the first stories that I covered in my podcast series, Angela Walker in Conversation. And it was great that people felt that they would come on my podcast and talk to me about it, even though I wasn't part of the BBC anymore. And that made me think that they were pleased with the way that I'd helped them tell their story. We're so. always a part of the BBC, aren't we, Angie? Regardless <laughs> of how long we feel we've left there. Part of there, but not representing anymore. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and as a final question, what has this 20-year journalism journey taught you about yourself? Well, I suppose it's taught me that I'm a very determined person. Mm. And I think sometimes I should have a bit more confidence in myself, maybe, When I was leaving the Beeb and I wanted to set up on my own, I contacted people that I'd worked with and asked them for testimonials. And honestly, some of them really brought me to tears because they wrote really positive things about my work and it was good to get a bit of recognition and to feel that, yeah, I'd done a good job sometimes. And that's... What sometimes I've always wanted to do again well, it was as this the, the lack of confidence coming in here more than sometimes well I've always tried my hardest you know my dad has always said to me even for a kid you know it doesn't matter as long as you try your best and I always say that to my kids and I always give everything 110 percent and sometimes it pays off and that's great 
and I think it's always been important to me to kind of shine a light on underreported issues because they're underreported and sometimes they're not sexy and people don't want to cover those stories (laughs) but I will because it's still important and it's up to me as a journalist to make it interesting and to make people want to hear about it so what have I learned yeah you know just keep on banging on and someone might listen eventually We've talked all about Angela, the journalist. I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey now, Angie. So I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Angie we meet here? Gosh, early mental health experiences. Well, it's tricky, really. My mum and dad got divorced when I was 17 and I suppose that's when I started to become really independent because I moved out and I moved in with my boyfriend because I didn't want to make a choice between mum and dad and I'm quite an independent person and I was like I'm just going to do things my way so that's why I had to be working to pay my way through college and uni because I wasn't living at home I had rent to pay And so I think that helped me just build up this strength of character, really. And that's why I've always been very self-contained. And I'm not going to rely on you. I'm not going to rely on anyone else. I'm going to rely on me because I can. (laughs) Because, you know, you're never going to let yourself down, are you? Well, hopefully. That's it. That's the idea. I'm getting getting independent women, Destiny's Child, 1990. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whatever it was. Absolutely, absolutely. So I've always been the sort of person to do it on my own terms. Move to Norfolk on my own. Yeah, why not? Move to Russia on my own. Don't know anyone. I'm going to do it. Just you try and stop me. So I think, yeah, that that's my parents getting divorced did make me quite focused. And mm-hmm. I knew what I wanted to do with my career. And I was just full steam ahead. I, I'm just going to do this, really. Mm-hmm. And so that was taking me through like my early 20s when I went off and did all this kind of traveling and I also did voluntary service overseas where I went to Ghana and worked there as part of a project for a few months so that was quite character building as as well and that was like yeah off I go and I wanted to help people and so I was working for the National Council for Women and Development so we were working in schools giving talks about HIV and AIDS um, and getting to experience life living with the family in Ghana so that was quite amazing but again it was just this independent streak of yeah I'm just gonna uh... go and do do what I I need to you do did, basically. You didn't fall into the the white middle class girl, white saviour complex going to Africa and having pictures of all the kids, did you? Yeah, or I don't know because it's Because so you can even tricky. get away with doing that now, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't think that I was. I just wanted to experience life there and we were working alongside Ghanaians. So I don't think we went out there to like rescue people. We went out there to, I don't know, maybe it was selfish. Was it selfish? I wanted to experience life in Ghana and see if I could help people and make a difference. I don't know, you know. If that makes you feel good about yourself, you're still helping people. I mean, I'm not really against that, to be honest. Also, it was a bit of an escape, wasn't it? As I was saying, you know, my parents got divorced, all that stuff was going on and... 
I wanted to travel. It was a way to travel. But yeah, I did really want to help people and I always have. But when you actually being a helper and when is it a white saviour complex? I don't know. I didn't think maybe when you get all the when you get the picture of all the kids around you, maybe that's maybe that's when it falls into that. (laughs) I've seen a few of those in my time. I'm like, oh, this is problematic. But we did get our hands dirty, but we were working as part of a team of you know, there were like 20 Brits and 20 Ghanaians and we were all working together. We didn't that go out good. there. Yeah, yeah. We didn't go out there and do something and go, look how great we are. We're going to give this to you. And also the Ghanaians came back to the UK with us. So we worked on a project in Inverness, which was also amazing. And uh, we were working with the elderly. So they were helping us and we were learning about their culture and they were learning about our culture. So it was like an exchange thing. So I feel still feel good about that project. And I saw a lot of poverty and things that and I've shown my kids, you know, like, look how lucky we are just because of where we were born. And I really felt that when I was working in Ghana and also when I was in parts of Russia as well because outside of Moscow there is a lot of poverty Mm. Moscow doesn't really represent the rest of Russia and you you know there are people living in kind of like wooden shacks and a lot of villages outside of Moscow so we have to be really grateful I think so I'm always yeah telling my children we we are so lucky where we live and everything that we've got and so the things that I saw when I was in Ghana they did shape me and one day we saw a terrible road crash and there'd been a collision and it was like an articulated lorry had jackknifed and taken out a minibus and people were trapped in this ditch and we were like the first people on the scene and so I was going well when's an ambulance going to arrive how naive there was no ambulance an ambulance was never going to come the nearest hospital was miles away help wasn't coming and that's when I thought oh my god you know we're so lucky if we phone for an ambulance if something happens and an ambulance will come and there'll be people that help us but back in Uh, Ghana eventually right now with the NHS (laughs) but you know and so we were helping carry people injured people out of this minibus and then putting them in in our minibus and then our minibus drove them to the hospital and now two of those people died and that was a massive shock they got to the hospital and there wasn't the expertise to help them they didn't have a fighting chance and that is because the hospital was so understaffed the people that were there were inexperienced they were overstretched they didn't have the facilities and that was a massive eye-opener to me actually I grew up a lot out there actually because seeing experiencing life in a developing country and I mean experiencing it living it is just really different from seeing it on the telly so those sort of experiences do shape you something we'll discuss in a second is related to what we're going to discuss now, which is motherhood. So Mm. tell me first how becoming a mother to your two children changed your life and your mental health along with it. Well, being a mum's pretty amazing. I think from a professional point of view, I've always wanted my daughter 
in particular. My son's only two, my daughter's nine, and I've always wanted her to see me working. And she's very aware of the people that I interview and the stories that I do because I share them with her because I want her to see that women can be professionals and women can work and women can make an uh, amazing and really important contribution in society. So I did a story the other day about a lady called Celia Chartre-Aris. She's got a feeding tube and she can't eat. So she's completely reliant on this feeding tube. And as a result... She experiences a lot of prejudice. People, like adult people, I cannot get this, they come up to her and they ask her about the feeding tube and they touch it and they pull it and they call her a freak. And so I've told my daughter, like, this is this lady that I've interviewed and she's amazing. She's a disability advocate. And so I want to use my work to educate my children as well. And that's People really so important weird, to me. man. I would feel so much social... I would, like, feel too much social anxiety or even like my boundaries would be too high to even touch touching it I know I know you can't believe what people go through and you know I've had people who read my blog about Celia and who listen to or watch my podcast with Celia people with disabilities who've contacted me and said thank you for covering this story with Celia I've got disabilities and I face this kind of prejudice every day and it's not until people come to you and tell you that you even realize that this goes on because we're so ignorant in our everyday lives because we're not experiencing it ourselves so I like to share my work with my daughter tell her what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and so that's important but yeah, motherhood was difficult for me in the early days because I had a, a traumatic birth with my daughter. When she was born, it turned into it started off as like a, oh, I'm I'm gonna have this relaxing, uh, but I would have liked a home birth, but it's not advice for the first one. So I did hypnobirthing where you have all these mantras. My body was made to birth this baby. And uh, does that uh, actually work when the baby's coming out? Spraying my lavender. And it did put me in a great frame of mind. I wasn't scared going into having a baby, but unfortunately there were complications. And there was a situation called shoulder dystocia, which is where the head is born and the shoulders are wedged and that is an emergency because the baby can be starved of oxygen Mm. and die or have serious disabilities Mm. as a result so they broke her collarbone to get her out yeah which was traumatized like reliving it actually talking about it now so and they did a lot of damage to me when they had to get her out because it was an emergency and you've literally got a couple of minutes to get that baby born. And they didn't realise that they'd broken her collarbone. So for the first few days, I was saying, you know, my baby, she's really fractious, she's really crying. And they were going, oh, you're a first-time mum. Of course, you're overly worried. And I said, there's something wrong with her. You know, I could just tell from the way that she was Mm. crying. You had a mother's instinct, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she was in pain. And anyway, after about four days, and we were still in hospital, and the nurse said, 
you know, there was this weird noise. There was a clicky noise. And every time I was trying to jostle her around to get her in a position to breastfeed her, she wasn't latching on. And it was the end of the collarbone clicking together. You could hear it rubbing together. And so that was really traumatic. And so she had to have a, we had to like swaddle her tightly to try and stop her from flailing her arms around. And so she had lots of checks and everything. And, you know, very like fortunately, she's got no lasting injuries at all. So that was traumatic in itself. And, you know, when you have a newborn baby, you're like, oh my goodness. It's hard enough. What do I do with this little thing? I've got to keep it alive. Oh my goodness. And like nothing prepares you. I mean, I'm a reader. I had read every book going. And no, until it actually happens, you just don't know what you're doing. But uh, so I had this beautiful baby, Amelia. And it was wonderful. But from the time that I had her, I had this thing going on with my left leg. I had a pins and needles constantly in my left leg and my foot was numb. And I went to the doctors and I said, oh, my foot's numb. And the doctor said, oh, have you tried wearing insoles? I said, it's not to do with insoles. I said, there's something wrong with my body since giving birth. And I was just for like five years going backwards and forwards to the doctors. And then I saw a physio and they gave me exercises. And I just, you know, when I was driving, my leg was numb and it was just like an ongoing sciatica that got triggered and so then they thought I might have a bulging disc in my back and they did like scans and I didn't have a bulging disc in my back and eventually I went to see a private physio and she said oh well you know when you've got like joint hypermobility syndrome you can get like nerve entrapments and I was like joint hypermobility syndrome and she went yeah you're really hypermobile and I was like what So she did these tests, it's called the Baton test, and they ask you to do things like, can you bend your little finger back past 90 degrees? Can you bend your thumb and touch your wrist? And all these things indicate like if you've got lax joints. And so I'm I'm hypermobile. Well, I was like, oh, I'm in my 40s by now. And I never even knew that I was hypermobile. I knew I was quite bendy. And so what was happening was ever since giving birth, my pelvis had been out of alignment and I had this condition called piriformis syndrome which is where you've got like a trapped nerve and that's what gives you this weakness and sensation in the leg but by then it got worse and worse and I'd uh, compensated by walking a bit strangely so then I had a muscle imbalance so I've got like one leg that's now more muscly than the other because I've been unconsciously walking strangely all this time and then I ended up because the sciatica got so bad I was signed off work for a few months and then I ended up on this awful medication it was awful for me I know for a lot of people it does help it's called gabapentin but for me it triggered depression in a bad way and it was a really really terrible time and that was really hard and it was hard for my family because I was just depressed and crying and I didn't know what was wrong with me and I think it was a combination of the chronic pain from the sciatica and the medication And also fear, because I was signed off work. And when you're in news, you have to keep abreast of the news. It's current affairs. You need to know what's going on. You don't want to look like a skyver. But it was awful. I couldn't drive properly because I couldn't sit down because it triggered the sciatica. I couldn't 
lay down properly. Everything that I did was just triggering this terrible pain down the back of my left leg and into my foot. And uh, I still got it. I'm sitting on the, we've been sitting, chatting for a long time. So I've been sat down in a chair for ages. So right now all my left legs all tingly. I'm on my you sister's know? pregnancy ring because I've also had surgery two months ago. Oh so. gosh, what a pair. Mm. So yeah, so I've lived with this chronic pain for quite a long time now. And I get tingling in my fingers because I get trapped nerves in my elbows because of the loose joints. And there are so many things associated with joint hypermobility syndrome, which I did not know that I've always suffered from migraines. I've suffered from hernias. So when I was pregnant, I had these massive hernias in my groin, like an egg, which which is because when you've got joint hypermobility syndrome, you've got extra stretchy collagen, not just in your joints, but in your organs and around your body as well. So you're more susceptible to prolapses and hernias. And I did not know any of these things were related until really recently. So now that I do know that they're related, it means that I can do stuff to help myself. So Mm. I do a lot of Pilates because strengthening your body supports your joints and I swim and that helps and if I don't do Pilates then I really know about it in my body but yeah it's taken a long time but now I know that I can kind of like keep on top of it but I think having a diagnosis is having a weight lifted off your shoulder because you think all these years I felt like I was a hypochondriac and actually Mm. there is a reason for these things that have been happening to me. But joint hypermobility is, again, it's not something that we hear a great deal about. And there are a lot of people that are living with that to various degrees. And there are some people who have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is an extreme version of it, and they will have dislocations. So, you know, they'll regularly dislocate their shoulders, their knees. My joints are very clicky and crunchy, but, you know, touch wood, that isn't something. I do my elbows lock every now and then, but I don't have like the dislocations. So there are, you know, really extremes of this condition that people are living with. And I have every sympathy with them because, you know, I've got this version and it's it's very mild compared with what they live with. But it causes me problems every day. Mm. So, yeah, that's been quite tough. And also, I don't want to be like thinking, oh, if I do a really long drive today, I'm not going to be able to do anything tomorrow. But I have to accept that my body has these limitations now. And that's quite hard because I'm not someone who wants to pace themselves. I'm not Mm. someone who wants to go, oh, if I do that today, then tomorrow's a write-off. Or, oh, if I do a bit of painting and decorating, I can't do it until I've finished. I have to draw a line because otherwise I won't be able to move because I'll be in a lot of pain. Mm. That's really hard to, to accept that your body's letting you down, basically. I know this is a hypothetical question, but how do you reflect on when you were diagnosed? So like, do you feel that if you were diagnosed before your daughter's birth, it would have affected your decision whether to be pregnant or not? No, I would definitely would have had kids, but... I had a knee operation before I had children. I used to do a lot of running and I did sprint triathlons and a lot of half marathons and I did a marathon. And now the reason I probably needed the operation is because I was hypermobile. And when I was running, my kneecap was like all over the place. But, you know, I saw like loads of sports therapists and nobody 
tested me, but if I'd have known that I was hypermobile, I'd have stopped running, you know, because it's not good to do those kind of impact sports. Especially a marathon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And after I did, I was in, and when I did, another symptom is that for people with joint hypermobility, when they have an operation, recovery is really hard. And so I had this knee surgery and the um, they said to me, oh, you have to go in and get your stitches checked to the doctors well my knee was massive it just swelled up so much and I couldn't bend it or anything and so I phoned the doctors and I said oh look I can't come in because I live in a second floor flat and I can't go down the stairs and I live on my own and the district nurse said to me I said can I have a home visit and she said home visits are people who are seriously ill like people with cancer not for people who can't be bothered to come to the surgery And I said, if you can't come to me, then I just have to leave it because I just can't get out of the house. You know, I just can't. Anyway, she came and did a home visit. And when she saw my leg, she was shocked. And she actually apologised. And she said, oh, my goodness. Yeah, your knee is like really badly swollen. And yeah, I can understand why you couldn't come in. So it's stuff like that. But I didn't know at the time that the reason my body had reacted like that is because of the joint hypermobility. So it would have changed, it would have changed things in a way. Yeah, that's for sure. Given all of these issues that you've had, whether it's with your daughter and the collarbone issue or whether it's with Mm. hypermobility, has it decreased your trust in the medical system? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, the NHS is amazing, but it is really overstretched. I mean, more than that, because the physios, Um, I imagine, weren't NHS, they were probably independent Um, like the medical system more widely as well as the NHS well one of the physios that I saw and he was like giving me these stretches and I was saying and he was he was an NHS physio and I said I don't know if this is really helping me because the nerve entrapment means that my leg is buzzing all the time and it's like a constant irritation And it's not like a searing pain all the time sometimes I do get shooting pains but it's not so when I was explaining it to the physio he was going oh well normally I deal with people who are in pain now he was quite dismissive but if you have a constant like it's like if you have tinnitus or something if you've got a constant sensation like that all the time it wears you down it is pain because it's your body is doing something that it shouldn't be doing so I did feel very dismissed but one of the things that people with joint hypermobility syndrome do is they call themselves zebras, yeah? Just because it looks like a horse and sounds like a horse doesn't mean it's a horse. It could be a zebra. So you might have a lot of minor ailments and they're not really pointing to joint hypermobility syndrome. It's only when you look at them as a whole that you can add them all together and realise... And joint hypermobility, they don't really know that much about it. They've just reclassified it. So there are lots of people with like different versions of it. So the learning about it, the scientific learning about it is developing all the time. So there are a lot of grey areas and that there are rheumatologists who don't really understand it. So it's not that anyone really let me down. I think it's more like there was a lack of knowledge because I was going to the doctors going oh I've got headaches and they were like oh right you've got cluster headaches have this medicine or I'm going oh my leg's doing this oh yeah you've got this 
or oh I've got hernias okay but no one was going oh hang on a minute you've got this 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 and this it's part of a whole condition and I don't know I don't really know why all those indicators weren't looked at as a whole but yeah there's a lack of knowledge really I want to reflect on your mental health journey now, Angie. So similar Mm. question to the first topic. What has this mental health journey taught you about yourself, first of all? Um, Gosh, it's really tricky. What has my mental health journey taught me? You've got to advocate for yourself. Yeah, you have to. If you've got something wrong with you and and people are telling you that you don't, you know your body. It's like when my daughter was born, you know, and I knew that there was something wrong with her. And I was saying, and they said, oh, she's been checked over by the paediatrician. I said, something is wrong with her. And it wasn't until they went and x-rayed her on like day four or five. And they were like, oh, yeah, her collarbone's broken. You've got to fight for yourself because nobody else is going to do it. And that is the same in the medical system if you've got something going on in your body then you've got to get it checked out and don't take no for an answer it's really important especially when the NHS is really overstretched maybe you do have to point out things and fight Mm. for the care that you need I had to do that myself Mm -hmm. what was your ailment I had an abscess oh gosh in a sensitive area oh dear yeah (laughs) so I won't specify for the listeners what that was but yeah I I was seen I was seen once and it was passed off as one thing and I just was told to take antibiotics and then it got Mm. horrendously worse and then I said I need to go back to the GP and then Mm. I got it reassessed and I got sent to A&E that day and I was prepped for surgery in two days Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. you've got to fight for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if in the health sphere, but also, you know, in the world of work, stand up for yourself and stand up for other people as well who need that. I think that's really important. And, and I think from a mental health point of view, I've always felt like as long as I know that I've always done my best, then that will be good enough for me. As long as I know, yeah, that I've always tried my hardest, then that's what's important. And as a final question, if you could go back and talk to the Angie who was about to go into Active FM and do her first ever interview, or the Angie who was in (laughs) Moscow wondering about her free speech, or the Angie who was about to become a mum and was suffering with hypermobility syndrome, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? gosh stay strong just keep fighting just keep plugging on in whatever you do you know I've started this new venture so I've left the BBC to go freelance and I've been doing my podcast Angela Walker in conversation and it was a massive leap of faith in myself I had to go oh can I do this and push aside any self-doubt and say, I am going to go alone and I'm going to set up this podcast. And you know what? In like 10 weeks, I've had 10,000 interactions with my work in 10 weeks. That is outstanding. That is a testament to the wonderful people that I've interviewed on my podcasts. And and I was just looking at the other day, you know, across all things like Instagram, YouTube videos, the podcasts, Twitter, my blog, and I had a lot of 
self-doubt when I was doing it but I'm really glad that I have because I've got people contacting me saying thanks for writing a blog about this thanks for doing a podcast about that so it's good that I had a bit of self-belief and just plowed on and did it you know a few people said to me oh you're crazy yeah maybe I am but I'll be crazy my way thanks (laughs) and now what's really great is that I'm also doing business podcasts so I'm showcasing my work on my website and I'm going to carry on doing that because I'm highlighting important issues but I have to make a living as well so I'm doing business podcasts so I've got my first few clients and it's been 10 weeks and I'm building up this small business little old me going out interviewing people doing these podcasts and uh, and it feels good our final topic of conversation Angie and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time it is a general natter and quick fire chat hmm. about our mental health so firstly how is your mental health Do you know what? I'm in a really good place right now and it feels so good to be able to say that. I've got my health issues under control through Pilates, which helps keep me strong, through swimming, which is so good for my mental health because, you know, when you've got kids and you've got a busy life, swimming's amazing because it's really quiet and no one can talk to you and badger you. (laughs) Also, I do stuff like I listen to Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's podcast, which is about living well and think you know there are just some things that you can do like you can incorporate into your everyday life like going outside and getting some fresh air and some uv listening to some calming music doing some like five minute meditations and so i do all those things and that helps me and i think the fact that i took control of my career as well by leaving the BBC when I did and powering ahead you know I'm working really hard at the moment I'm 11 o'clock at night editing researching writing my blog it's a whole job in it podcasting (laughs) it really is and my husband was like why how is it that you're working more now than you know when you had an actual job and I'm like yeah I know but it doesn't feel like that because I'm doing it for me and I'm doing it for all the people that are involved in my podcast it It doesn't feel like work it feels like an important thing and so when you're doing important work it makes you feel good and that is really good for your mental health I think Mm. so yeah it feels great As one of Romford's most famous sons, Barry Hearn says, no passion, no point. Exactly. I love that. (laughs) What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Gosh, that's really tricky. I don't know. Do you not know? Um, when did I become aware of myself? I would say like quite late on, not till I was like in my thirties, really. There's I no right really, or wrong age. Yeah, so that's, I that's never, fine. I never really thought about mental health. You don't think about mental health, do you? Until you've not got growing challenges. up in Romford. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, was it a I, eureka hmm. moment or was it a gradual moment? Gradual process. Sorry. I don't know. Do you know what? I gave up drink altogether about five years ago because, you know, we have such a drinking culture, don't we? And I realised it wasn't doing me any favours. I was drinking wine most nights. and Doesn't I was like, being I need... a parent as well. I mean, yeah, it's just, it just makes everything trickier. Combination of being tired. And then, I, and then I, I found out, you know, alcohol stays in your body for two weeks. So even if you don't drink for like during the week, you've always got it in you. And so I did dry January and then I was like, oh, um, this feels really good. So I carried on doing it. Now it's been like nearly five years 
And I definitely think like not drinking alcohol at all has been really good for my mental health. And around about that time, you know, I was having all these like physical health problems as well. And I just wanted to just get really fit and healthy. And so I think, again, it's about taking control, isn't it? It's about Mm. saying, do you know what? Like, because when I was younger, drinking, it was like a cultural thing. And we always went out drinking and you know, I'm not saying people shouldn't do that. But for me, when you don't go out much, because you're a parent, you end up like drinking wine at home. I was just like, I want to break from that, really. So taking control of my career, taking control of my health, I think that's really helped me. Can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, this massive moment or weight had been lifted? Or on the other, something quite easy and normal to do? Uh, Well, I definitely remember conversations with my dad when I was in Moscow. And I used to phone my dad all the time. And I remember at a time I did feel quite isolated and lonely. And I remember phoning my dad and I was really down actually I can't remember about this specific incident but you know I was living abroad in a foreign country as a young single person so although it was really fun there were moments where I felt quite isolated and my dad said to me why don't you go to church and when I was young we always went to church and he said I'm not saying go to church for necessarily religious reasons but community yeah yeah, going to church it's a quiet place where you can be on your own and gather your thoughts and the churches in like Moscow are absolutely beautiful (laughs) they're very grand aren't Um, they (laughs) so I did and I used to go to church and just be there you can't sit down in a Russian church you have to stand (laughs) but I just used to go and take in that quiet and that stillness and that really helped me get clarity of mind what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so it could be things people say to you a sound a sensation being in a particular social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet no I'm not sure really I think if I take on too much which I have a really bad habit of doing like I can get overwhelmed basically you know I've got two children I've got a husband I've got a dog I've got a cat you got it all going on <laughs> voluntary work I'm doing the podcast I'm also applying for jobs and trying to look for freelance work doing other stuff and sometimes I have to go do you know what I've got to take a step back from this and I have to schedule in isn't that crazy I schedule in times to relax <laughs> so I'm going I'm going for a swim at this time and it doesn't matter how busy I am I have to do that for my mental health mm. or I'm gonna walk the dog because I need to go outside get some fresh air and yes I have got a pile of dishes that need doing and I've got a load of writing to do but you have to make time for your mental health or it's going to catch up with you basically <laughs> And outside of swimming in Pilates, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health? Which ones have you found that have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I would say the major one is like meditation and listening to Headspace or listening to Dr. Rung and Chatterjee's podcast and reading his books. And his books are really good, actually, because they give you like some key points to focus on. And sometimes it's good to go back to them and go, yes, I just need to go and sit in the sunshine for five minutes or about living in the moment 
thinking about what you're doing right now. And, you know, there's nothing like having small children that helps you live in the moment. My little boy, he just loves flowers. And we don't always stop and smell the flowers, do we? I know that's really trite, but he loves looking at flowers and touching them and smelling them and looking at the colours. And yeah, we all need to do that a bit more, like be aware of our surroundings. What can I see around me? What can I hear around me if I'm sitting in a garden and it's still? What can I smell? What sensations are there on my body? And that's a nice thing about swimming, you know, the coolness of the water, feeling the water on your skin, feeling the sun on your face. And I think the things like that. smell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't ruin the moment yeah (laughs) so yeah I probably know Mm. the answer to this next question but what is the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health or self-help related it doesn't exclusively have to be and if you can't think of a book a tv show a album any piece of popular culture well, I think that I'm going on about Dr. Rung and Chatterjee, but his, <laughs> his book about, I think it's Five Pillars of Health is really good. But also, like, I love listening to music like Pink Floyd. Oh, and wow. I haven't done that. Lead singer of Pink Floyd's and oh. saying some problematic stuff at the moment, but we'll leave that. <laughs> well, yeah. It's just that music that I suppose it takes me back to being a teenager. And I always loved, loved Zeppelin and music like that and Fleetwood Mac and so I don't know if listening to to the music of your youth takes you back to happy times but it works for me anyway. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why? Oh my goodness a mantra gosh I suppose it's just like never give up whether it's about your career or your you know, or your mental health or any other goal. Because I think having goals, having things to look forward to and things that you're working on help you feel fulfilled. About, well, it was more than 10 years ago now, but I did Kilimanjaro. Oh. And so training for that, oh, I'm going to climb Snowdon. Now I'm going to do Devil's Bowl. Now I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do that. Oh, yeah. And now the ultimate goal is Kilimanjaro. Having those things to look forward to. Oh, one day I said, I'm going to run a marathon. I hadn't done any running. So then I'm working towards doing a 10K. Then I'm doing loads of half marathons. Then I'm... So it's just having stuff to, mm. to work towards keeps you... Goals, yeah. Yeah, goals, yeah. life goals. Mm. What do you love about yourself, Oh my God, that's a horrible question. That's what do you mean? Hor- <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't like that at all. I like Brit- I British I'm- guests do not like this question. No. This is why I ask it. Really horrible. I say my steely determination. There you go. Which sometimes being very focused is a bit detrimental because you can be a bit like, hyper-focused I suppose mm-hmm. I suppose you, I say that like about my podcast at the moment I'm just like uh, I'm obsessed with it but I think having that focus and drive really keeps me going yeah and as a final question this is a broad one what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly they want to do it 
Well, we've just got to keep talking, haven't we? And it shouldn't be taboo. And I think it's really probably harder for men to talk about their feelings. We live it still live in this culture where men are supposed to be hard and macho and women are supposed to be soft and nurturing and there doesn't seem to be any in between. I mean, things are changing a bit, but we've got to talk about it. And I think it starts in schools. And, you know, my husband's a graphic designer and he worked on this amazing project called The Last Photo. And on the South Bank, they had all these huge photos of people. And part of the project was that they didn't label those people or say what the project was about, but they were the last photograph of people who died by suicide. And you wouldn't have known it in the pictures. You know, they looked happy, but they all had this terrible secret inside that they were terribly, terribly sad and unhappy. Gosh, it was such an emotional campaign that he worked on. And I mean... So many people are dying by suicide and a lot of them are young men and that is an absolute tragedy and we all are responsible for stopping mental health from being a taboo subject. And on that note, Angela Walker, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Angie for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with her. I will put some links to where you can find out more about Angela's work and follow her on social media in the show notes. I will sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give the podcast a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please do give us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can go to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can go to www.linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the ways you can financially support Vent and help us out. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent.